I was drawn to Interior Castle as a field guide, a field guide, a way for me to be able to understand what the process looks like, how I could cooperate with the Holy Spirit more directly in the transformation of my heart. There's a scene at the end of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in the book, The Last Battle, where he paints this incredible picture of the children running through a mountain landscape, crossing streams and meadows of great beauty, following the enticing words of Aslan that echo over and over, further up and further in, calling them deeper and deeper into wonder upon wonder, further up and further in. This is sort of how I feel when I encounter the works, the stories, and the lives of the great devotional writers. They take us further up and further in. I find it easy sometimes to be discouraged with the shallow trivialities of how Christianity can be expressed in our day. And I need to remember There are always deeper waters that we're invited to swim in, further up and further in. It's these lives of faithful Christ followers and the depths of knowledge and experience they pass down to us, further up and further in. Today, it's our friend from the 16th century, the Carmelite nun Teresa of Avila. Now, in the Renovare Book Club, we're about to collectively dig into her book, the interior castle. And I really can't think of a better guide to have with us than our guest today, retired pastor, Renovare board and ministry team member and institute faculty, Mimi Dixon. I believe there's still time to join us in the book club where you can hear more detailed interviews with Mimi, study guides, and exclusive essays that she put together for us. You can find out more info on our website at renovare.org at renovare.org slash book club. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Hi, Mimi. Hello, Nathan. How are you doing? Well, I'm all right. And, and, Good. And I'm, I'm particularly excited today because we get to talk about one of your dear friends, Yes, indeed. (laughs) Tell us about how you discovered Teresa. Well, I had not been exposed growing up really to any of the people from the millennial period. For me, the uh, there was the early church when the New Testament letters were written, and then you skip to the Reformation, and everything (laughs) in between was sort of a blank. And if it was discussed at all or brought up, it was there was always kind of a frown and shaking of the head that those were Catholics. <laughs> well, I was introduced to the ancients, to the devotional writers by your father and by Dallas Willard, really? who both encouraged me, yes, who encouraged me to um, go back and find some of my story in their stories. So I, when I read Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle, Um, I found it initially to be somewhat dense and cyclical because, um, as I later learned, she was she wrote it when she was uh, 60 years old. 
And she had already been very active in ministry and starting some religious communities is what they called them then. What it really was is gathering of companions who shared a desire to grow deep in union with God. And so she had a number of these communities that she started over a period of time. And so Teresa was very, very busy. She wasn't a person who was sitting somewhere. She was going around and nurturing the relationships of these people that she had, um, who had gathered around this vision of a deeper life with God. And so she was asked by her uh, spiritual supervisor to write a handbook. And the handbook, he said, would not be for general publication. It wouldn't show up in a bookstore somewhere. It would be a handbook of what she was teaching these young women who were under her care. In, and so in he, living in communal life, so nuns yes. in, around the country, yes. around Spain? What is it? Yes, these were in Spain. And so these gatherings of young women, she was their teacher. She nurtured their relationship. She was a mentor. She was an example. And so he asked her if she would be willing to write down what she was teaching. Well, she initially resisted it because she had health issues and she was very busy, very tired, like all the rest of us. She had a lot going on and she just thought, no, I'm teaching it. I'm face to face. I don't need to write it down. Well, he put her under something called a vow of obedience and asked her if she would be willing to do this as um as an act of obedience so that, and I'm so glad she did because now we have it in our hands as well. So Teresa talked to Jesus about it. She said, I don't have any idea what to write. What should I write? And Jesus showed her a picture of the soul like this, uh, like a palace with rooms that you move through these rooms. And at the very center of this palace, this, this, um, glorious picture of the soul is where God dwells in, as image bearers. The Holy Spirit is available to us. So Teresa started writing about what it looks like to travel in this journey toward deeper union with God. Now, I was drawn to Teresa because I was trying very hard to understand what does it look like to grow into a deeper and deeper relationship with God? What does it look like to see in Jesus the potential of what a well human being experiences in relationship with God and other people? So I was drawn to Interior Castle as a field guide, a field guide, a way for me to be able to understand what the process looks like, what the challenges are along the way, what the invitation is in each of these, these spaces or aspects of our spiritual formation, how I could cooperate with the Holy Spirit more directly in the transformation of my heart so that I would become more and more myself as an image bearer, which would be something like what Jesus, what we see in Jesus. So I became a student of Teresa of Avila. And I read and reread the interior castle and began to understand something of what this journey looks like. Now, Teresa is very, very quick to tell her sisters, her readers, that her journey would not be identical to their journey, but there would be shared aspects. 
so that as she unfolded before them, what her life with God, what her deepening relationship with the Trinity looked like, that they would resonate and share a sense of, oh, I've experienced that as well. So she's not laying out a map saying this is how you get from Denver to Colorado Springs. That's not what she's doing. What she is doing is saying this is one soul's journey into intimacy with God and that she had experienced over these years of her ministry that there were shared aspects, shared experiences, shared challenges that could be helpful to other people as she shared, this is what I've experienced, this is what you may expect along the way. So these mansions or stages are are not meant to be rigid or um, I'm not supposed to, I'm not meant to find myself in there per se. No, in fact, she would, she would say that in each of these aspects or stages or, or um, places that we would expect to move through, she says that there's a lot of fluidity. That's why she, why it's plural mansions, not mansion. It's not the first mansion, the second mansion, it's first mansions. And the way that you, Nathan Foster, would experience the first mansions would probably be different from the way that Mimi Dixon would experience this aspect or this stage. But the work is the same. So she talks about how in each of these areas, she she talks about the interior of the soul as being very open, very spacious, that it has lots and lots and lots of rooms. But as we progress toward a deeper union with God that she describes relationally, not spatially, we can expect certain similar challenges along the way or opportunities. So it serves as a, a guidebook for union with God. And it, and it, it seems that prayer, right? This yes, is all. Was, yeah, go ahead. You anticipated <laughs> what I was going to say. She <laughs> describes it in terms of different, the different kinds of prayer we experience. So she she talks about how there are really there's a division in this process. There's phase one and then phase two. Phase one would be mansions one through three. Phase four or phase two would be mansions four through seven. So Teresa would say that in the first three mansions, this would be the way that we're first becoming aware of God. We're first starting to think about God as being somebody who cares about us and longs for intimacy with us. All of her language always is relational. Here's a relational God who created us for relationship. He wants to close that gap. So the first three mansions, phase one of our formation, these really focus on our effort as a person, what I'm doing to try to learn more about God, how I'm confused about unanswered prayer, how I am longing to be more worthy of God's love, how active I am in doing things for God, making a difference in the kingdom, having my life count for God. So the first three mansions really focus. Good things. Yes, these are all good things. And if you think about any relationship, this is how it begins. The work of the first two mansions really are, if you think about it, like noticing somebody that you're curious about and then finding out from a friend that they're interested in knowing more about you as well. 
So everything you're thinking about that point is, what do they think of me? How do I look? I wonder how they responded to what they just heard. So there's this, it's an attraction. So if you think about a church whose focus, whose call is on the first three mansions, they would seek to attract interest. They would be focused on seekers. They would want to introduce people to a God who created them and yearns for them and loves them and is reaching for them. They're going to invite people to be in the scriptures. They're going to they're going to create small groups. They're going to help people begin thinking about how God has uniquely equipped them for a place in God's ongoing story of redemption. So they're going to be begin to think about what they care about in ministry, spiritual gifts, equipment. They're going to become involved. Now, Teresa doesn't spend a lot of time in Interior Castle focusing on that first phase of the journey because her, um, her audience, these young women have already, they've done all of that. They are now all in. They are very desirous of growing in a deeper relationship with God, and they're focused on it. So she gives very little real attention to that first phase, that phase one of our spiritual life. But um, many people are called to ministry to make that their focus because they're seeking to draw people that don't know God personally into a relationship with, with the Trinity. So. Where Teresa places most of her emphasis is on phase two, mansions four through seven. And she uses a a metaphor. She describes it as now you're acquainted, but now you begin seriously dating. So this relationship with the Lord, you're dating, then you become betrothed, and then you commit to a life together. So that's the movement between the fourth through the seventh mansions. And Teresa talks about how there's a lot of movement in there. So sometimes you find yourself going all the way back, maybe to the third mansion or the fourth mansion, but then you return quickly to where that growing edge is. So she, if you think about it like uh, the mansion's like a campground, and there are, there are seven campgrounds there. There's a lot of fluidity. So you can be moving between campsites in your spiritual journey. And it feels to us sometimes like we're going backwards, but we're really not. What we're doing is we're moving into a whole new depth of intimacy. And we're coming to it whole. We're being gathered by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes there are parts of us that need to be, we go back and we pick it up and we move forward. So. She's not, she doesn't judge at all in Interior Castle. What she's trying to do is identify to be clear about what's possible in our life with God. And then to encourage us to keep pressing forward and allow the Holy Spirit to gather us. So our prayer changes over time, just like our conversation with somebody changes from an acquaintance to a friendship to somebody that really is a companion in this journey into a life with God. And then you begin experiencing depths of intimacy. So our prayer, our conversation with God, our our interaction with the Lord changes over time. And so that's what she calls it. She says it's a it's a journey in prayer. It's a it's a, a deepening communication 
with God until we enter into this life with him that is so intimate that um, sometimes we just sit together. We don't say anything. It's just this, this prayer of quiet, she calls it. So it's a beautiful thing. And as she describes it, you begin to say, oh, yes, yes, yes. yes I do know that. <laughs> and I want that. That's the other piece. I I think. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> and her assumption is that you will experience it. <laughs> so she writes, just by way of comparison, the second mansion, one chapter. The sixth mansion, 11 chapters. <laughs> because yeah. her assumption is that as we respond, the invitation comes from the Trinity. I, I don't try to try to work my way to God and I hope that, that I'm uh, making progress. That's really the attitude of the first phase, mansions one to three. Now I am in this place where I realize I am being drawn because in the second phase, it shifts, the focus of shifts, shifts to what the spirit is drawing me into. The focus becomes less me and more this invitation. So we feel the call, we feel the invitation, we feel the drawing, and our prayer begins to change. The subject of our praying really is, has to do with our willingness to respond to what we're being drawn into, to what what the Trinity is drawing us into this life. So again, if you think about Teresa's metaphor of marriage, here is a suitor. Now, we are not the suitor. We're not pursuing God. That's sort of the way we thought about it initially. But now we're in this new kind of thing. Our, our prayer is changing and what we're aware what we become aware of is the longing of our suitor to be with us. And so he's very focused on us. He's, um, he sees us. He understands us. He's present to us. He is drawing us. He looks for opportunities to be with us. And there in the fourth mansions, there's some resistance to that because Many of us don't like ourselves very well. We don't think we're very worthy. We think that when God looks at us, he has to see us the way we see ourselves because he knows everything. And he knows uh, Julian of Norwich. This was the heart of her conversation with Jesus. She just said, how can you stand us? How can you stand me? I say I'll do something and then I don't. I'll resolve to never do that again and then I do. How in the world do you stand us? So, of course, with Julian, what Jesus showed her is when my father looks at you, he sees you clothed in me. He doesn't see the nakedness of your shame. He sees you clothed in my righteousness and he loves you. Now, Teresa stands in that same place of saying, when the Trinity looks at you, what they want to do is hold out their hands and draw you into the dance of their life together. And there is no shame in that dance. There's only invitation. There's only delight. There's only joy. Now, Teresa is quick to say in a lot of the sixth mansion, 
a lot of the six mansion conversation revolves around our worry that somehow we can fall out of that relationship, that our inability to be perfect will somehow disqualify us. Now, Teresa makes it clear that at that point, you are, you are betrothed, you are betrothed to Jesus. And there's no way he's going to let you go. He just won't. And so we need to, we learn not to pay attention to those voices. And we learn to allow ourselves to be focused on delighting him because he delights us. So you see, there's, we get that. We know what it is to love. We know what it is to to long to delight and please the other. We know what it is to be in that place where there's just, it just feels like something really sweet and good and beautiful is happening. And we also know that that's contagious, that when we are in that kind of place, there's a lightness in in us that's contagious. So she's inviting her sisters, the people on her audience in writing this book to understand that when you have these thoughts, when you have this, this worry about somehow being disqualified because you're not, you're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. You're not consistent enough to just say, when he looks at you, he doesn't see any of that. What he sees is that longing to not displease comes out of a place of deep love and devotion. And Teresa's saying, that's what it looks like. So rejoice in what he sees when he sees you and allow yourself to begin to see yourself as he sees you. So it reminds me of Bernard of Clairvaux, the highest degree of love. The fourth degree of love is to love yourself for God's sake. Because I think it, I think it breaks God's heart when we withdraw and we hide in the bushes, and He comes looking for us and says, "Where are you?" And we say, "Oh, I'm hiding because I'm naked." And He yells, "Who told you you were naked? And why did you believe it?" So our our behavior certainly, um, you know, we're looking at actual data when we say, "Well, I'm not good enough," but an interior castle. Teresa is inviting us into this place where we have ears for one voice alone. And that's the voice of the beloved. So she says in the sixth mansion, the door is open to the seventh and we go in and out and in and out. We experience this, this intimacy and goodness of it. And then we move back into this place of kind of, and that's just the way it is. It's what C.S. Lewis calls in, in um, screw tape letters the law of undulation. He talks about it in chapter six. He said, human beings go up and down. They have times when we experience great intimacy with God and then times when we feel really on the outskirts, we feel like exiles. She does talk about suffering and oh, gosh. this yes. dark night of the senses. Could, could mm-hmm. you maybe give us a little bit about how these later mansions and how important some of these things are? Yes, that's that's a really important aspect of Teresa's teaching. She and again, some in the fifth, but really a, a large quantity of the six mansions. Her chapters talk about what you're describing right here. 
And she describes two, two kinds of suffering. The suffering that comes from outside of yourself, how other people see you, how they perceive you, how they speak of you, how they treat you. And she said, and that, and that can be very challenging. That can be difficult. And you need to have somebody that is um, a confessor, she calls it. Somebody who's watching you and journeying with you can help you weigh these things and see what's important to you as part of your growing understanding of yourself and what the Lord's inviting you to release and what has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with that other person. So she talks about that. But then she says the most difficult aspect of our suffering is the internal. What, um, you know, it's, it's Romans 7, 15 and following. I do what I don't want to do. What I, what I, my behavior is here. My longing is here. And I don't know what to do about the gap. So she talks about that quite a bit in the sixth mansions. And she is expecting that this is going to be the this is going to be the slippery slope this will be the bog that will tempt her sister to get stuck there she also talks about physical suffering and teresa herself she had tb she had all kinds of stuff wrong with her so she wrote interior castle in a six month period of time and during four of those months she couldn't write anything because she was so sick so i know that's um you just say, well, why Why would God allow somebody who has such an important role to be tormented by a physical ailment? Why didn't he just heal her? Well, Teresa writes, particularly again in the Six Mansions, that this teaches us how weak we are. It shifts our focus from ourselves and how we're doing to looking to God for his strength for the ability to do what he's calling us to do. She said that her physical ailments have had a huge role in helping her learn to depend on God and to understand how he is present even in these things. But she describes it in an even more powerful way. She believes that the things we're struggling with, the, the suffering we experience is our opportunity to come alongside Jesus in his suffering. And not just suffering in the past on the cross, but the way that he continues to be broken and weep over the condition of our world. So she says, Teresa says, when we suffer, it's our opportunity to lean into and be present to Jesus in his suffering so he's not suffering alone. We come alongside, we take the place of Mary at the foot of the cross, his mother at the foot of the cross, who by her presence was able to um, alleviate some of the suffering of her son. So he could look down and he could see her. She wasn't going to leave. She was leaning into it. She was holding him. She was present to him. And Teresa says that, some, that she believes that the greatest love we can show Jesus is to open our heart to the suffering that breaks his heart. That's been very important for me. You talk about or you use this language of Jesus as first responder and inviting yeah. us into some of these places. Could you say a little bit about that? 
Yes. And when I think about a first responder, I don't just think about somebody who comes, shows up, does something critical to save a life and then sends them off in the ambulance to the hospital. When I think about Jesus, what I've experienced and what I've witnessed, what all of us have seen is that Jesus runs toward the crisis. He does not run away from it. And he runs to it in order to draw that suffering, to to pull it into himself. So what we actually experience, I wonder if it isn't because of him, a fraction of what it would cost us were we all on our own. So we still experience, if you think about Jesus rushing to us in the midst of a storm, it, the storm remains, but he's present with us and to us in the midst of it, drawing most of it into himself, the destructive power of it. So we're still in the storm, but we're in it with him. Your dad will often pray that God will surround you with a wall of light four feet thick. And I think that is actually literally what happens. We still are in the storm. He doesn't immediately still the storm. I suppose sometimes he does, but often the storm continues. But in the midst of it, there's a sense of being sheltered. So you can hear it, you can see it, you can feel it a little bit, but it's different because he's there. Now, I can think about that in terms of um, my own experience where my preference, I have a huge preference for comfort. So I would want to say, Jesus, can't you just do what you did in the boat on the Sea of Galilee? Can't you just wake up and make the storm go away? I know you're here with me. You don't seem to be too troubled by it. I am, so please make it stop. And I wonder if he isn't inviting us, particularly as we mature in deeper relationships with the Lord. Teresa says that people in the sixth and seventh mansions actually welcome suffering because they know that's where he is. He always runs toward crisis, not away from it. So if I'm following him, And he's purifying my heart to be less focused on me and more focused on him. Is it not possible that he would ask if I would be willing to come with him because it means so much to him that I'm there? I don't, there's not a whole lot I can bring to it, but I don't think that matters to him. It just matters that you and I choose to be where he is even and especially if it's a difficult place. So I think about somebody who is growing deep in relationship with the Trinity. Might it not be possible that that person would be exposed to suffering, maybe their own or someone that they love? Might it not be possible that he would invite us to journey with them, be present to them, open to them, pour into them in the same way that he is doing. I believe Teresa would say, well, of course, because that's very often how people experience God through our presence, through our listening, through our choice not to go away because it's too hard. So there is quite a bit in interior castle in, in the second phase And as our intimacy with the Lord 
grows and deepens, where what matters to him matters to us. What he's doing, we're willing to be present to. And he gives us the ability. It The storm is still there. So that, Teresa, I, I want Teresa to say, and in the sixth and seventh mansions, you don't struggle anymore. <laughs> It, you know, the suffering goes away or it's out there, but it doesn't touch you anymore. She doesn't say that because it touches Jesus. Jesus didn't go up to heaven and say, thank goodness that's over. He continues to hover and be present and reach and respond. And it means everything, absolutely everything, when we're willing to be present to him and with him when he's in those places and what people see is us, but we followed him into it. Will you tell us about your parents? My, my parents were um, friends of Jesus. And I went to visit them a few years ago, and my parents told me that my mother had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I was completely dismayed by that news because I just thought the worst possible thing is to lose your memories. That's the worst possible thing. And so I I was stunned and shocked. I didn't respond at all. And my Parents looked at one another, they were holding hands, and they squeezed each other's hands, and they looked back at me, and my father said, you know, we've never said no to Jesus. And we talked about this together, and we prayed about it, and we agreed that if Jesus is going into the Valley of Alzheimer's disease, we'll go with him, because that's what had come to them in their prayer. I'm going here. It would mean everything to me if you would be willing to accompany me. So they said yes to Jesus. And over the next few years, Nathan, oh my goodness, what they had trained a lifetime to be willing to do, to be with Jesus wherever he is. They had conversations with people that had they not been in a place where they were experiencing these things themselves, if that was a storm that wasn't their storm, they never could have had the kind of access, the kind of level of encouragement and hope. And they were a light in the darkness to the very end, to the very end. My mother never lost my dad and she never lost Jesus even though she, um, many other things slipped away. She became radiant. And my father was amazing. There was a, there were a couple people, they were um, women who were married to, they were Indian themselves. And um, they saw my dad after my mother's death. And I was there spending some time with him. And they told him that they had never seen love like that where even though my mother was in a place where at that point she was receiving full care, they always tried to be there at the end of the day. They just on the other side of the curtain because her, their mother-in-law was there in the same room with my mom. And they would listen to my dad pray. They said they would hold their breath to hear him pray, telling her how much he loved her and thanking God for bringing her into his life. And that if tonight her journey was over, 
And Jesus drew her to himself that my dad would be okay with that because he knew soon they would be reunited. And they told my father they'd never seen love like that before. So I don't know what my journey is. I don't know what's ahead of me, but I do know, know Nathan with all my heart. I want to say yes to Jesus, no matter what it looks like. And I know he is one who runs toward danger. He is the one who goes where nobody wants to go. Am I willing to go there with him? I think that's what it looks like. And there's much joy in that. Teresa says in the sixth and seventh mansions, there's much joy. There are times of great celebration and goodness. It's not going into a hole and then having the dirt pour in on your head. But there will be times that what we're doing is we're learning that we're going with Jesus to these places. He will provide the strength that we need in the places he leads us. But it means everything to him that we're willing to go. So, Teresa, it's a field guide. It's a field guide for people who are absolutely committed to going where only he can take us and to the place that we were born and hardwired to find our joy. So I, she's a, she's a, I'm a fan <laughs> and she's a friend of mine. And I am so, I'm looking forward to the Renovari book club where we'll be spending some time together over the next weeks in interior castle. And I encourage people not to be put off by how circular it is, because Teresa's, it's like you're sitting down and having a conversation. And it would be very difficult to outline a conversation you just had with somebody where you're talking about the most important and the most intimate things in our life with God. So it's like a conversation, it unfolds, and sometimes it, it kind of circles back on itself. But I think that reflects the journey itself. There are times when, when we really feel that we, we have some perspective, and then there are times when we feel like we're back in the valley. It's all part of it, all part of it. And we're being encouraged and drawn. And Teresa would say, keep going. He knows what he's doing. And it's truly all good. Mimi, I can't thank you enough. So helpful. Well, Nathan, thank you for being one of those people that encourages me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're welcome. We'll talk again, my friend. Well, there you have it. Wow. I found some tears at the end there. I am so grateful to learn from Mimi, and I'm grateful for you all out there joining me in this journey. Further up and further in. Hope to see you in the book club as we continue to dig into this helpful and important work. Have a great week.